everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all about the books of Rick Riordan. Today, we continue The Mark of Athena. How you doing today, Jane? Oh, I'm, I'm doing all right. Listeners, you've joined us in our, our punished podcasting phase. Uh-huh. Jacqueline, Jacqueline is bleeding from open wounds on her hands, like That's... like Christ on the cross. That is correct. It is a little bit. <laughs> I, I don't know if we've talked about my sort of... <laughs> I, I've already done a podcast intro calling myself Christ before, so I feel like maybe <laughs> I maybe I should lean back. I see, I see. Uh, and I have a headache because I didn't get enough sleep last night, so we're all on top form here. That's right. Uh, just like these chapters. <laughs> these were good chapters. They they actually work kind of good. I I had I had a good time. Would you would you like to maybe give us the dirt on what happened in them? Let me just very quickly check for news because sometimes it happens and we miss it. Wait, did we talk about how they announced that um one of the the Hephaestus casting? No, we haven't talked about it. The Hephaestus casting has proved that Rick Riordan is a solvable puzzle. Uh, because the person who was cast as Hephaestus uh, played a character on none other than Psyche. Leo Valdez's favorite show, the theme from which he hums in that fucking short story collection. Wait, Leo! And that's Hephaestus is his dad! Oh my Uh god! I never thought about that even. Uh, it's It's all coming together. It really is. And speaking of Leo... Speaking of Leo, oh wait, wait! One very other quick update. Um, I I wish the Twitter programmer who put together the algorithm, uh, which delivered a recommended tweet straight into my fucking face with a massive spoiler in it, a very pleasant retrograde ejaculation. <laughs> oh no! I think I know the one you're talking about because I think it's the one that we um. We both like saw at the same time on the wiki once and just tried to avoid. No, it's different. Isn't it the? I know. I think it is the. It's the same one. It's the. I it it, it was a one. It's a different one from the one that we like saw for a split second. Oh God. Okay. I assume you're gonna beat that <laughs> the fucking name out. Yeah, I will. God. <laughs> Maybe I will hate this. Maybe this series will ruin everything that I loved about it, and just I don't know. Or maybe it'll be good. I don't know. Let's fucking podcast. Let's fucking podcast about it. Uh, chapter 5, Leo. Back on the Argo, which is now kind of a flaming wreck, Annabeth and Frank interrogate Leo over what the hell happened. Leo says it's fuzzy and like he was just watching himself fire at the ballista and start shooting. Frank is suspicious of this explanation, but when Leo mentions that his fugue state was accompanied by a chilly feeling, Annabeth visibly reacts and lays off him, although she doesn't tell the others that she recognizes what Leo is talking about. She goes below decks to help with Jason, who took a breach to the head during the fighting, leaving Frank and Leo alone. Frank asks Leo if his name is Sammy, and Leo says no, and is unsure why Frank would even ask something like that. Frank refuses to elaborate, and Leo decides not to push it, since he's on thin ice already. Instead, to distract himself from how awful he feels, he sets about trying to repair the ship, and gets Festus to do a scan for the materials he needs. Lime, tar, and celestial bronze. This is a bit of a problem, because once the ship lands to get any repair materials, it's too busted off to take off again without all of the repairs. 
While the scan is going, Percy and Annabeth return to the deck, and Annabeth just about manages to stop Percy from killing Leo. Thankfully, Festus chimes in with some much needed good news, which is that there's a location with easily accessible tar, lime, and celestial bronze, and it even comes with a decent spot to land the ship, Salt Lake City. The Argo 2 puts down in the lake, and Hazel rejoins the crew on Arion. She looks at Leo strangely, and Leo reflects that he thinks she's pretty attractive, before catching himself since Frank mentioned that she was his girlfriend. Leo gives Hazel the grand tour of the ship, which is essentially a trireme but sized up with modern amenities, and individual cabins installed. In the mess hall, the pair run into Percy, Annabeth, and Frank. Percy tries to initiate their own prophecy prediction corner, which leads to revealing that he's had Tyson move Ella out of New Rome and back to Camp Halfblood, to make sure that Octavian doesn't get his hands on the Sibylline books. However, they don't get too much into the prophecy, because Annabeth insists that right now they need to focus on the ship repairs. The demigods decide to split into teams to get their stuff, since while the ship conceals them in the same way that the camps do, having more than three demigods in one place while outside is more than likely to draw monstrous attention. Annabeth also formally absolves Leo of any guilt over the attack, explaining that she felt that same chill sensation as they were coming into the city. They split into three groups. Piper and Coach Hedge will keep an eye on Jason aboard the Argo, Frank will use his dragon powers to fly Percy and Annabeth to the city to collect tar from a hardware store, and, on Hazel's insistence, she'll take Sammy, sorry, I mean Leo, with her to the island in the centre of the lake, where they'll find lime and celestial bronze. Chapter 6, Leo. Before they leave, Percy takes Leo aside and runs him through Hazel's backstory, without the part about Sammy. With that, he and Hazel set off to the island, arriving on a beach covered in what Leo quickly realises is not sand, but crushed limestone. There's some awkward conversation before Leo takes a punt at Hazel's motivations for bringing him here, and asks if Sammy is someone she used to know. She replies that he was, and asks if Leo's family is from New Orleans, to which he replies that they're not because they're from Houston. Hazel is too embarrassed to say much more, just remarking that Leo looks a lot like Sammy. They gather the lime that they need and store it in Leo's tool belt before heading off in the direction of the Celestial Bronze. On the way, they encounter a cool biker girl in all leather, shocking fortune cookies to remove all the nice fortunes and replace them with the more ominous ones. Up close, Leo recoils, recognising her as his Aunt Rosa, who threw him to social services after blaming him for his mother's death, while Hazel is positive that she's Mrs. Leah, her awful third grade teacher. It turns out that she's neither. The woman is Nemesis, goddess of revenge, and her appearance is that of whoever the kids want revenge on the most. She tells the kids that they shouldn't expect any godly help on their quest. In fact, because there's now a real possibility of a Greco-Roman war, most of the gods are incapacitated by being split between their aspects as they try to pick a side. Nemesis is one of the few who's unaffected since her Greek and Roman aspects are basically the same. Not to mention that the whole fiasco has caused the Pantheon to turn on Hera slash Juno for organising this idiotic scheme to begin with, so she'll be too busy dodging their wrath to help out the kids. Nemesis, however, says that she thinks Gaia sucks, and is happy to muck in and help as long as appropriate sacrifices are made. She offers some unsolicited and distressing predictions. She tells Hazel that in six days Rome will burn and Nico will die, and Leo that he will never find a place among his comrades, never be accepted, and he will soon face a problem that he can only solve by paying the price for her assistance. She gives him a fortune cookie which contains the answer he'll need, and apparently he'll know when he needs to use it. Then Nemesis rides off into the night, saying that the kids will find the Celestial Bronze with her kid on the other side of the island. Chapter 7, Leo. Hale notices that Leo is so pissed that he's unconsciously creating fire, which freaks her out because she still has Frank's wood on her, although he doesn't tell Leo this. I think I just misgendered Hazel. She doesn't tell Leo this. 
As they're walking, they run into Echo, a girl whose curse to fade into the background and can only speak by repeating what other people say to her. Like Midas, she's one of the mortals who has gotten out of the doors of death. She leads them to the piece of celestial bronze, which is in the centre of a crowd of nymph groupies, all surrounding the most handsome boy Leo has ever clapped eyes on. This turns out to be Narcissus, a demigod son of Nemesis, who was cursed to fall in love with his own reflection for breaking too many hearts. And, unfortunately, the mirror that he's looking into right now is the chunk of celestial bronze that the kids need for the Argo. Leo tries to take it, but the crowd of nymph groupies shove him, Hazel, and Echo out of there. It turns out that Echo actually fell in love with Narcissus 4,000 years ago, and is now trying to rescue him from his curse by helping Leo and Hazel to steal his dumb mirror. They eventually settle on a plan. Leo will cause a distraction while Hazel uses her Pluto powers to tunnel the chunk of bronze underground, grab it, and flee back to the Argo. Chapter 8. Leo uses some accessories from his tool belt to turn himself into a Sigma male, and attempts to distract the nymphs by dunking on Narcissus and preening himself, while Echo uses her near invisibility to gas him up by pretending to be various nymphs, and repeating their praise for Narcissus but for Leo. Surprisingly, this actually works, and Narcissus looks away from his reflection to sneer back at Leo, long enough for Hazel to nick it. They manage to make it onto Arion to escape, but when Leo offers to take Echo with them so she won't get in trouble for helping, she refuses. She still loves Narcissus and believes that he has a chance to help him now that his mirror is gone. For a moment, Leo is able to see her fully, and swears to himself that he'll hold her image in his mind, so that even if Narcissus never notices her, someone will be able to appreciate her. But it's no good. Before they've even gotten back to the Argo, her appearance has faded from Leo's memory. So, what do you think of these chapters? I mean, like, they were really good, right? These were really good. I, I, I had... I thought I was going to dislike them after my first reading, but after going back over them again to take notes, I, I really enjoyed these. I think these are the best set of chapters we've had in a minute. I think that's true. Like, I enjoyed <laughs> the first of this... I enjoyed the first of this book a lot, but it's so, first of all, very refreshing to just read Leo, uh, read Leo chapters. <laughs> I, I miss I, Leo. I love Leo. I love this boy. He's He became one of our favorite, like our favorite character in The Lost Hero for a reason. He kind of mm-hmm. remains that way. Definitely. The biggest, hmm, what's the, what's, if I had to give like the biggest objectionable thing about these chapters that maybe could still be something it's that we were 100% right, it feels like, about Love Triangle stuff happening. I, I completely agree with you on this. I'm, I'm dreading that this is the territory that we're broaching, but I think that so far it's actually been done in a kind of interesting way. So I'm not raising the alarm bells just yet. Right, because... I, I think we should get this out of the way at the top. Love Triangles, as a concept... Why, like... We, we to discuss like why do people just like dislike them inherently mm-hmm. I think I think that there is a degree to which sometimes they are criticized for being I feel like some of the main criticisms are that they are that they are um repetitive that they are like very consistently done lazily like just like kind of ripped from other stories there's often an element of like cynicism to them where it's like it's just trying to like whip up engagement tm with the fan base by making them fight over which ship will win out in the end right and there's also generally an aspect of like um like not to every complaint but there can tend to be a strain of like backlash against the idea of like something that exists 
in a hazy like uncertainty that like exists mm. without like this pure monogamy uh like, <laughs> i feel like that that tends to like be a, a at least a, a strain of of criticism against it yeah and, that's definitely like some people's problems with it but this so far in leo's eyes all he thinks about hazel is like wow this girl's kind of cute uh and wow this is really weird (laughs) (laughs) well i like i I feel like it maybe goes a little bit deeper than that but i like that the romantic tension the the, the little that we've gotten between them in these chapters is so obviously fucked up yeah where it's like hazel clearly has a thing a bit of a thing for leo because he reminds her of sammy a dead guy who she will never be with again and she is kind of struggling to get past this like this this omen from her past this person who like as far as she's concerned up until a few months ago she was like hanging around quite a lot while leo is like i mean we see in these chapters he feels very isolated even before he fucked up and got mind controlled or whatever uh he kind of felt like the third wheel with jason and piper and that kind of feels like what's happening again because everyone on the ship is coupled up except him and coach hedge i guess no, that's completely right. And like the big thing that he like connects with Hazel over in his mind is like, oh, we both have dead moms. <laughs> like he he hears her talking about like her tragic life and he's like, "Oh, I have a tragic life too. Like everything sucks for me as well." She just like me for real for real. God. So there's it doesn't feel tired, I guess necessarily. Yeah, it's not because the way these love triangles usually go is there's just kind of like there's there's two conventionally attractive people that a protagonist has to choose between and it could kind of go either way and the story refuses to really commit to one or the other and something like that this is very obviously like explaining why there might be something between these two people definitely definitely so it's probably still going to be a car crash but it's for now it's good i think yeah i think so Wait, can we talk about uh, the other, Leo's other expression of, like, we get a lot of, like, Leo, not horny, but, like, Leo just talking about attractiveness and, like, various things like that in these chapters. Uh-huh. Later later on with the nymphs, but first is with Annabeth, actually. Um, <laughs> did, did this come out as, like, kind of weird to you, too, um, where... Leo is talking is like getting chewed out by Annabeth like she's interrogating him and he is like I think the specific thing he says is like he gets distracted by the fact that she's blonde and he's like her the the sentence says her blonde hair fell loose around her shoulders but Leo didn't find that attractive and then he went on to talk about how like he people talk about how blondes are like dumb and giggly but actually he's found that they are quite dangerous and smart the implication being like if they were dumb and giggly leo would find them attractive but they're actually i don't know there's something weird here it's like why is he thinking about this the way i read that was i i very much get the impression that while at camp half flood he made one too many dumb blonde jokes within a shot of annabeth and got put in his fucking place very quickly (laughs) i i could see that leo would make dumb blonde jokes he would, and it would also explain why the power dynamic between him and Annabeth is very much, he does what he's fucking told. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, uh, wait, 
I've, I've, I realized there was actually a thing about these chapters that I dislike slightly more than the potential love triangle stuff. Okay. Uh, which is, I don't like that we're going with mind control as the explanation for um, uh, Leo attacking New Rome. Uh-huh. I, I, I just feel like if... Because we, we just straight up assumed that it was Octavian in the last set of chapters. Yeah, that Octavian had, like, Whammington Poison Ivy style. Yeah. And it, I don't know, it feels weird to me that it's, that doesn't seem to be the direction that we're going in, given that, like, so much of the word count of these books has been, uh, you know, the Greeks and the Romans don't really trust each other. Uh, disastrous things always happen when they meet. And I feel like Octavian getting humiliated in the Senate and trying to save face by starting a fucking war would be, like, a really good expression of that. It feels like a failure to commit to the basic premise of why these camps never usually do this. It's it seems like it's just going to be like, oh, there was a there was a force, there was a scary force, and it's controlling them. Which it was Kyone, she's back. It it might be you might you might have been right last episode. I don't fucking know. <laughs> she gets she gets shouted out in this chapter. Yeah, Leo mentions her when he's go- when he's going through like the list of like women who he has run into who have ruined his life, <laughs> which is a list that he apparently does keep on hand. Uh-huh. <laughs> Listen, if you're Leo, you need to have like a little bit of like, well, if if women are so good, then why did this happen? I think all I'm saying is that I, Jason and Piper maybe do need to spend a bit more time with him. To make sure that he's not holed up alone in Bunker 9 going on r slash incels or something. Oh god, I hope I, I hope not. I love Leo. He's, he shouldn't I, do that. I don't want him to fall down a radicalization pipeline, please. But the problem is that's dangerous because he is at Camp Half-Blood. That's true, that's true. He's in, he's in the Chiron pipeline. God. God. <laughs> it's been, checks watch, like 87 episodes since we've talked about the Chiron pipeline, probably. <laughs> I feel uh, like it comes up relatively often. That's true. No, you're right because it seems like we are leaning into the like the Romans and the Greeks are going to fight, but because it's not an action that was caused, I mean it was caused indirect like directly in a way by Leo, but because mm-hmm. it ultimately isn't going to be an action it seems like that was caused by either side, it's going to be something that they can like easily reunite after i guess it has the same energy as lex luther tricking batman and superman into fighting in the yeah. shitty batman movie oh my god you're right that's really true <laughs> my least favorite thing that's not in these chapters is coach hedge uh-huh because he's so irrelevant and useless to the plot that he like he in- appears intermittently so that he can be shuffled off screen to do something else i don't okay so it's so fucking funny because the exact same thing that you were hoping wouldn't happen last episode happened this epi- this this set of chapters, uh, which is that you were like, I'm going to be so mad if Coach Heads just like comes back in frame and was like, he was just like in a different room the entire time. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what happened. He was watching the big game. He was watching the sports ball. And fucking like, okay, I, I don't get it i don't get what the bit with coach hedges like are we supposed to find him endearing he's he's not useful in any way he's not funny he's not particularly entertaining or wise he just kind of takes up space yeah we could have had like a more interesting character here there we could have (laughs) 
Hey, you know who I just realized we don't have here? Who do we not have? Grover. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck, you're right. Why isn't Grover here? He's an adult. He's like 30. Yeah, he's like a 17,000-year-old man. (laughs) God, no. Grover, I mean, I guess it's... Okay, so... It's supposed to be that, like, they have a adult supervisor or whatever. That gives a lot of opportunity for, like, oh, we brought in this character, kind of like Tantalus style. Like, yeah. oh, we, we brought in this random character who, like, has to find a dynamic with the group. And, like, they're, they're, that's that's a role to fill in a story. But instead of putting a character there who can bounce off of the rest of the characters, Coach Hedge was put in. Coach Hedge... <laughs> is not especially a character. He's just a guy with a club who yells die. And that's the fact that like even the story knows that and like has reduced <laughs> him to that because it cuz there was a little bit to coach Hedge in Lost Hero. He had a little bit of a something about like feeling as if he was getting old and useless and being insecure about that. Yeah. But what if he had like none of that here? He is just useless now. <laughs> What if he had, like, changed and grown because of that? That could have been... That maybe could have been been interesting. Yeah. He's got his, like, 20-year-old girlfriend or whatever, so... Do you think the publisher just told Rick that he's not allowed to write, like, an extended months-long road trip with a bunch of teenagers crammed onto a boat and not have an adult supervisor there? Surely not. By this point, like, every single book has been, like, teenager road trip death party, so, like, it feels like... But maybe you're right. Like there's there could be a limit there. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm I just cuz again, like you were saying, it feels like even the story knows that he's useless and is just keeping him there as an obligation. I'm trying Let, to figure out who that obligation is to. Let's think about some other let's think about some other alternative. Oh, I know who the obligation is to. Big goats. They were they were lobbying Hyperion. Oh. Oh, that well, I was gonna say because it's Disney, right? It's it's fucking uh-huh. Disney by this point. Uh, they were like, "Oh, Coach Hedge is a lot like fucking Phil from Hercules." Oh fuck, you're right. Which isn't true. Like the, the Coach Hedge is not a lot like Phil from Hercules, but in a very superficial sense, I suppose he could. Oh no, yeah, seen. I can I can see a Disney executive thinking that. And so maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know, because this, this series has also made it canon that Hercules was a piece of shit. <laughs> so, I don't know. Who are some cooler characters this could... Like, who are some cooler adult supervisors this could have been? I, I guess you can't do Chiron because we're not allowed to have Mr. D anymore. So he has to keep an eye on Camp Half-Blood. Yeah. Ah, uh, shit. They could have had... <laughs> what if they had brought back Tantalus? <laughs> I don't know, maybe they maybe they don't want to draw attention to the fact that they were, like, violating the doors of death thing before Gaia was doing it. <laughs> oh, man. I, I guess thinking about this question, there aren't a ton of adult characters at Camp Dr. Half-Blood. Claymore. Claymore? Dr. Claymore. Who? From the fucking, the, the Demigod Diaries. Oh, that guy, right, okay. <laughs> no, if they, I would... Oh, wait, no, he died. He died again. He, he did die. I know that I would, like... I know that we talked about how it's cool that Haley Ryerden wrote a story that is, like, isolated from the rest of... Like, like it's not just, like, oh, my OC meets Percy. But mm-hmm. uh, if if those characters did meet Percy and the gang, I would be hype. 
That would be pretty cool. I like those characters. It, because there is a uh, there is a demigod diaries mention here. There's a there's a reference to it. That's true. Yeah, Leo mentions the the insane nymphs from uh, the quest for Buford. So so we know that it's we know that it's in the character's thoughts. It's in Rick Riordan's brain as he's writing this. For sure. The characters don't have thoughts. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm I entering the world of dreams and fiction a bit too ha- bit too heavily. <laughs> but we don't have to... I The publishers shouldn't worry too much about, like, month-long road trips, like, like multiple months, uh, because we know that this story has to be complete uh, within six days. Uh... <laughs> It's amazing how we managed to hit on a vein of things that we don't like about these chapters that we were very positive about. Uh-huh. We'll mean, get to the good stuff eventually, we swear. Definitely. Uh, but but we've we've got listeners, say it with us again. Rick Riordan has introduced a time Ticking limit. Clock. Ticking clock. We, we pretend we said the same words. <laughs> <laughs> we said, look, words to the same effect. It's the same shit. It's what Rick Ryden does. It's the same shit every time, but he says it differently. Yeah, that's exactly right, huh? <laughs> oh my god. Could you, so can in you six tell- days, Rome will burn down and Nico will die. Sure. Whatever. Like, we don't even know why. Yeah, I guess it's fine. <laughs> it's the first eight chapters of like a 50 million chapter book. This so so long. I'm sure we'll learn who the antagonist is eventually or whatever. <laughs> but... It does feel I'm gonna guess Gaia. I mean, yes, Gaia, but like presumably there's a sub antagonist, right? Uh-huh. To pair with the Gaia being the dominant antagonist. I want to talk. Let's start with Nemesis. I love Nemesis. Nemesis is so cool. She is this like weird badass. Like I say badass because she's like ooh cool biker lady, which like you know we were so impressed by Ares when he showed up. Um, she's very Ares cool. Aries core for sure, but also she's just like making the fortunes and fortune cookies worse, which is the funniest introduction to any like hardcore character you could get. It's so good. She's just putting it's not even like you will die if you look behind you. It's just like your life will get slightly shittier in this way. But there also was one that was like, you will die a painful, like, that was like, you will live a happy life that she changed to like, you will die an unhappy death. (laughs) Uh, It it, it fits perfectly with the God of Revenge because she does just seem to be like a weird, petty little fuck. Well, it's that, but I also like that it isn't like, there's something interesting to me about how her view on revenge is portrayed Mm -hmm. that she seems almost more concerned with like the balance of things than she does with like the act of revenge itself. That's true. Yeah. Like she views her counterpart, uh, fucking Fortuna as sort of doling out unbalanced gifts, basically like giving Mm -hmm. people things they don't deserve. And she views herself as someone who balances the scales like brings brings things back to sort of an equilibrium and i think that's kind of an interesting take on revenge i guess yeah definitely uh, it's it kind of it plays into how she pitches herself as like a helping hand for the heroes going forward where she's like look i'll help you and i have every reason to help you because i hate these fuckers too but it is going to cost you because my whole deal is balance 
it makes uh, Ethan Nakamura's character make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm, definitely. He gets a shout-out here. He does. He, he, I, I, did we already... We already knew that he, like, gave his eye to his mom, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, we, when we meet him in Battle of the Labyrinth, I think he has both of his eyes, and then when he shows up later, he doesn't. Right, okay. And she basically offers a similar deal to Leo. Like, give me something that will hurt you, and I'll give you something that will help you. <laughs> it's... It really... I think the fact that she is more into this sort of like equilibrium thing makes her seem more almost like cold and alien and like almost like frightening. Yeah, for sure. Even though she is sort of, even though the literal act she is doing is like being very petty about fortune cookies. (laughs) I also love that like, I was a little divided on this, but the more we've talked about it, the more I've, I'm on board with it, uh, is like, um, we know that Nemesis was like one of Kronos's minions during the Titan War. But Hazel and Leo don't know that because they weren't around for it. And so it, it adds this extra like layer of um of like I don't know, ominousness to this scene to have these two characters, you know, they're not trusting Nemesis, but they're not regarding her with a level of threat that someone like Percy or Annabeth would. And it's just, it's a good way to ratchet up the tension as it goes. Absolutely. As the series goes on, it's kind of, I mean, I guess you can go back to the Son of Magic, where we're sort of crossing the lines and saying, like, mm-hmm. what does what do those old battle lines, which, you know, admittedly, were just like a couple of years ago at this point, or probably, no, not even a couple of years ago, like a year ago, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, those old battle lines from a year ago, what do they mean now? <laughs> like, would, because I don't think, if we, I don't think Kronos would have wanted Gaia to do what Gaia is going to do either. No, Kronos wanted to be in charge. Kronos would probably have killed the Olympians and then had to fight her. So that is incredible. Like that is seeing how these divisions are redrawn is like a really good effect of this being a sequel. Yeah, 100%. It's just, it's good building on what's come before, which is something that like for all our complaints about Heroes of Olympus, I think there's been a lot of that done really well. Also, like, I just, I love, I love as an escalation of the stakes, the idea that, like, most of the Olympians are not only locked away, but completely out of commission now because of the, like, Greco-Roman war stuff. Yeah. And that means that you are stuck with someone like Nemesis if you want help. It just makes everything feel a lot more desperate. Right. Like, you have to go to the ones who are the same. Like, the the ones who don't have the differing aspects. That's mm-hmm. that's not something that has come up a lot. Like we have a couple of characters. I think the one we know about so far is like Janus. Uh, like Janus is the same. Uh, is like a Roman god, uh, primarily. Yeah. And but it was, like also has a, sort of the the Greek side to it. I think Thanatos didn't have separate aspects. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's true. And so we're going to this kind of different category of sort of minor gods who the characters will have to go to. And I think that is like taking, taking the major gods out of commission makes a lot of sense. First of all. Yeah. And it's like as a story decision. And it also by implying that like, this is what happens every time there's a Greek and Roman conflict, which like, I guess historically is supposed to be kind of frequent. Yeah. Um, that it one, 
it makes a lot of sense why the these conflicts always are so like horrible and bloody because there can be no divine intervention. Yeah, definitely. And secondly, it brings it back to the self-interest. If every time this happens, it fucks with the gods, then of course they would want to separate the Greeks and the Romans and make them forget about each other. Yeah, it 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 it, it does a good job of like backing up some of the stuff that the other gods have been saying about. Well, Hera's taking kind of a huge fucking risk here, and not all of us appreciate it. Like it throws that in a new light in a really good way. It makes a decision that largely seemed, uh, I guess, thematic or like part of a grander plot that doesn't really tie into the characters' motivations and such. Uh, more personal on the levels of like the Olympians as characters, because we know mm-hmm. that they would be so aggravated by like having to be split like this. Yeah, the way Nemesis describes it sounds awful. Yeah. So, like, it. it it kind of makes me appreciate more just, like, the entire, I guess, premise of this division. Yeah, 100%. Speaking of this division... Uh-huh. Uh, these chapters have something that I think that we've been intermittently complaining about and has kind of been missing from these books. Mm-hmm. Which is, we spent a lot of time complaining that, like, despite being multi-character perspective, the Heroes of Olympus books are often, like, the same people in the same place doing the same shit. Like... Characters will hide, like, backstory stuff from each other, but, like, moment to moment they have the same, like, objectives and they don't really come into conflict in that way. But these chapters really underline, like, no, there's shit that these people are not telling each other and it's going to cause problems. Yeah, big time. And I it does that in two big ways. Um, mm-hmm. I, I Can you go... I like the I'll, I'll go over, like, the broad scale one first, which is sort of, like... It, it very out directly outlines just like how the structure is going to go forward, uh, which is that they just explicitly say, like you mentioned in the summaries, we're not going to send more than three people in a group together. There are seven yeah. of us, which means the characters will not always be in the same place. And so it is, it's kind, it kind of feels like Rick Riordan, like acknowledging that idea <laughs> and being like, Hey, I'm going to change things up. And I, I like that. Yeah. 100%. Uh, and the the specific like smaller scale moment that really made me think of this is um, uh, at the end of chapter five when they're getting ready to like go off on their separate side quests. Um, Hazel is like, "Oh no, I'll take Sammy. I mean Leo with me," and Frank is like glaring at Leo during this whole thing. And we, the reader, know that that's because Frank, you know, is knows that there was some romantic stuff between Hazel and Sammy, and is like a little anxious about Leo being left alone with her because there some stuff might happen. But Leo assumes that that's because Frank is worried about his loyalty because of the blister incident. And so that makes him, like, more motivated to go with Hazel to prove that he can be trusted. And so, like, and I I really like that we're making the space for characters to, like, horribly misread each other's intentions in that way. And potentially, like, do shit that fucks up their relationships. Yes, absolutely. I think, I, I again, I think this is a big advantage of, um... Like, this is a big advantage, just having more characters in the same place together for an extended period mm-hmm. of time. It's it's easier to cause a rift. Like, it's easier to let a rift happen in the story. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and there's also just, like, there's, there's little things, like, Annabeth doesn't immediately um, admit that she knows what Leo is talking about with the, the cold air thing. Like, she kind of leaves him out to dry for a little while before she decides if she wants to talk about that. Uh, and there's also... Um, when Leo reveals that he has fire powers, 
Hazel looks very nervous and like tucks something further into her pocket and doesn't tell Leo that it's the firewood. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it's just, there's, there's lots of little like moments of friction between these characters that I'm really enjoying and I'm, I'm hoping that... Because this we know that this is potentially from the covers going to end up with like Percy and Jason fighting. Yeah. And I'm I'm hoping that this is the kind of stuff that causes it and not like the mind control shit from the first four chapters. I... <laughs> I I I complete. I agree. I want it to be. I I don't want it to be Superman versus Batman. <laughs> Going back to what we were saying about having to find interesting new categories of gods, uh, and in like a different category of characters for the characters to bounce for the main characters to bounce off of. Did you notice that these n- mortals that we got here, Echo and Narcissus? Uh, they're they're decidedly different than every other like revived mortal we've gotten so far. I I I hadn't really thought about any ways that they might be different. What 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 do you think is setting them apart? They're not horribly evil. <laughs> every single other one we've seen so far was like fucked up and evil. Okay, that's true. Echo is present for two chapters and completely like steals the show to me a little bit. I I love Echo. I I love that like I feel like a lot of the time like we we complain about like random encounters TM just feeling like obligations, but Echo feels like a very immediate and pointed like personification of uh Leo's anxieties about fading into the background and being ignored. Yeah, yeah, I mean Echo and Narcissus both, like that's ultimately Leo Leo tries to consider like has to consider like which of these two which of these two is the reflection on me? Like, the, the one who fades into the background or, like, the self-obsessed narcissist who, ultimately, who will ultimately cause his own doom? And just getting just, like, a, a very straightforward thing like that is kind of rare in this series. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Echo fucking rules. I love her method of communication of, like, snipping off parts of what people have said to commu- and like saying them in certain like stressed ways to make them mean different things she's a walking talking youtube poop basically yeah <laughs> but in a really cool way definitely and narcissus has a has a has a nymph fan club which is i don't know it's fun it's- i guess it's very funny. I may, maybe this does blow a bit of a hole in our theory that like uh, Coach Hedge was like a publisher mandate because I don't think the publisher would have, if they were paying that close attention, would have let Rick keep in the joke where one of the nymphs is cut off just before saying no, sign my tits. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> my God, Rick Riordan does like to have a little fun. I think I've, I think reading big red tequila has opened us, uh, us up to like understand a different aspect of his brain a little bit uh-huh but yeah like but the nymph fan club is great narcissus is very like he's straightforward but also kind of like we get a bit more depth to him than you would expect ultimately the really the relationship between echo and narcissus is like kind of just like a very it's a very sad story within these like couple of chapters. Oh yeah, it's it's fucking horrible. Like she's fighting for this guy that she loves who she can never communicate with properly again 
to be freed from his curse, which is that he will just like, he never will love her as much as he loves himself. That's, that's heartbreaking. And like the fact that she is, the fact that she is still fighting for it. That's like, that's like anime. I don't know. You know what I mean? (laughs) No, I I get you. I guess it's the big feelings It's the dedication. Do you, I kind of picture Narcissus as like the Giga Chad guy. Oh God. Just because I I don't know I have this idea in my head of him like having all the like supposedly desirable like handsome male TM features but like amped up to an almost creepy and grotesque level. I mean there there is a lot of emphasis here placed on like his blondness his like his like golden skin and that's true. So I guess he is kind of like the Giga Chad slash like. <laughs> Slash like the fucking Wojak. the fucking four chan Wojak whatever, <laughs> which ugh, but also it seems very intentional I guess. Yeah, no, I th- we're not. I don't think we're meant to read him as like aspirational or like in, in any way. He's he's kind of weird. Yeah, uh, he... it's like the, the, the one of the best lines in these chapters is like I think like Leo hits him or something. And the line is, ow, he yelled very attractively. <laughs> yeah, I that was my favorite line in the entire set, yeah. It feel it does feel like the book is like dunking on him. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean it's this is again, it's filtered through Leo's perspective. This entire thing is also comparing him to Leo, who like mm-hmm. once he goes into his like Mr. Badass form, is like <laughs> like is directly comparing like he's scrawny whereas uh narcissist is like buff but he's like playing it up like oh yeah i invented scrawny scrawny's the new cute like it's <laughs> it's kind of, it's amazing i love that entire sequence that entire sequence is so it's so funny to see leo gassing himself up and like echo help and like how easily the nymphs are turned uh-huh and also it's like i feel like we get a lot of like shitty internet humor in these books like the the rufflecopter shit in son of neptune yeah where like the joke is just acknowledging that the internet exists but this feels like an, a kind of a, a, an early 2010s brand of like youtube pretty boy fucking clout war which kind of it, it plays out without acknowledging that that's what's happening but it's very obvious that that's what's going on well he's explicitly a youtuber right he is he is <laughs> he's literally i mean he guess he isn't the youtuber one of the nymphs is probably the youtuber who like is just posting videos of him that get a million views but it's literally just like a video of him staring at the water and it's that's that's some commentary i guess on uh, some some pretty base level commentary but it's it's there i guess i do also think i just realized that that nymph is gonna get him fucking killed uh-huh because demigods like when they use phones they attract monsters so if she's standing there fucking filming him for hours at a time oh. he's gonna attract a monster that you can't fight because he's looking at his reflection and he'll just die yeah he will i mean that's this is the fate of narcissus i suppose yeah <laughs> These... That they eventually get swatted by unhappy fans. Cry many Christ. <laughs> I to... also like Oh god. Such a sad ending to the final chapter. Like 
god. Leo, this is like one of my maybe one of my favorite endings to any chapter of this entire just like series so far. Uh-huh. Just um Leo a few paragraphs ago dedicating himself like Echo like saved him. He like respects her so much. He's never going to forget her. For the first time he can like see her clear blue eyes and like really un- like see her fully as a person. And then the final line is that he was already forgetting her smile as he left. And it's just uh, god. This the, the little bits like this are kind of like the shit that will probably always keep me coming back to Rick Ryden books no matter how much I bitch about them. Which is like I I just I love the moments when these can be like kind of quiet and sad and like the world is just a little bit too cruel to let something work out properly yeah like percy's relationship with his dad being kind of vague and awkward or like everything with calypso or that fucking kid just like dying when percy collapses that bridge in last olympian like that that kind of shit is what is like catnip for me it just it's always really good when it happens completely agreed i yeah, there's a lot to say here. Leo's heterosexuality is affirmed so many times. Uh, like <laughs> he is, even when it, this is this is a small point, but it is it does feel significant because it is it comes up multiple times. The stuff with Annabeth, the stuff with Echo, but specifically even when viewing Narcissus, who is supposed I said narcissist because it's really hard not to. Uh, <laughs> even when viewing Narcissus, uh, who is like. He's supposed to be the embodiment of all that is attractive. The way that he is viewing it, like him, isn't like, oh, I'm comparing myself to this attractive man. It's more like he's viewing himself because of narcissus and then thinking about yeah. like which of them would get more girls. Which is he's doing a lot of a lot of mental gymnastics there. Yeah. Which, Which is, we're, we're all completely pointless, because I read this, I read him, like, coming over the ridge and saying, oh, there's a really handsome demigod there, and I was like, boom, Leo's gonna get some, this is, this is how he deals with the blues about not being able to get a girlfriend, he's gonna meet a handsome guy. I, I would be fine with that, for sure. <laughs> Do we want to take a step back from these chapters, because I, I know that there was something that you wanted to bring up once we were done. Yeah, I I went down an insane rabbit hole while while taking notes for these chapters. Okay, which has led led to my my unified theory of the riot inverse. Oh my god! And which I, I I need I need you to trust me on this. Okay, I'm just checking something really fast. This is episode is episode eighty nine. <laughs> we're we're getting Jane episode eighty nine. We're getting Jane's theory of the riot inverse. Let, let's let's hear it. <laughs> okay. So, the broad, the broad headline of this theory that I have is, the Olympians are dying. Okay. So, I, this, this started from me thinking about, like, um, the, the possibility of, like, the civil war between Camp Jupiter and Camp Half-Blood. And thinking, well, hang on, they couldn't even really have, like, a war that would last years. They don't have enough demigods to, like, control territory or, like, do anything like that. It'll just be, like, whoever can get the biggest attack force to the other person's camp first will win. And so I thought, well, how did they have all those wars in the past? Maybe that means that there was, like, way more demigods back then, which would actually kind of track with the fact that we hear about a bunch of, like, adult historical figures who were demigods, but by the time we get to the present, like, it's all kids, 
and if you're an adult demigod, you're holed up in like Camp Jupiter. So it seems like from from that, it kind of seems like the mortality rate for demigods has like shot up. And I was I was wondering why that might have been, and then I realized like when demigods use technology like phones and shit like that, or any kind of communication device, it allows monsters to like zero in on them and kill them. And because like the rate of technology has been advancing so quickly, like at this point in the universe's history, that means that like the mortality rate must be going up and there's no way to avoid it because there's technology everywhere. So just more and more demigods are dying. Okay. Uh, demigods dying means that the Olympians fucking die because Ugh. Dionysus tells Percy and last Olympian that their power is like predicated on making demigods go on quests and go through the old motions. Right. We we've talked about this before quite frequently. So I think since like yeah. since like book 2. Yeah, exactly. And like we we see that like in Lightning Thief that quests are getting so dangerous that between Luke's botched raid on the Hesperides and Percy's mission in that book that like there were no quests. It has gotten so dangerous that they couldn't do any for years. So it seems like like the the rate of te- technological advancement is only going to increase. It's only going to make things more dangerous, and that's going to mean less demigods, less quests, and less power for the Olympians. And it kind of seems like a process that they're bringing on themselves, because the way this book figures, like the Enlightenment and stuff like that, is like this. This was a recapturing of like Greco-Roman values, and also like propelled modern technological and scientific advancement there's a lot of issues you could take with that but that's kind of broadly how this series frames that stuff Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in terms of like how it was adopted by like the founding fathers and shit and so like the ideology that sustains olympus is also driving the technological advancement that is fucking killing it yeah that it kind of seems like things are going to fall apart even without an external enemy like Kronos or Gaia. It's like they need the demigods to help them win the Titan War this time around, which they didn't last time, which kind of indicates that they have gotten weaker. That that makes sense to me. Anyway, this is this is the fucking rabbit hole that I went down while taking notes for these chapters. Where did this like what was your jumping off point here? My jumping off point was literally just um just because I was thinking like about the possibility of the war between the the camps just like while i was reading chapter five okay yeah and like oh it's kind of weird that rick thinks that like something like the american civil war could happen again at this point in history right like right okay right because let's think about that we know that whenever there is a mortal conflict it parallels with a demigod conflict does mm-hmm. that necessarily mean that a demigod conflict must correlate with a mortal conflict? Um, like, well, does that mean there will be a second civil... Like, the stakes of this are preventing a second civil war? I, it kind of seems like it must be, right? It it does seem like that. I, I almost... I don't know if worry is the right word. I almost wonder if, like, Rick Riordan will even consider that. Because... Hmm. He it must. would be interesting if there was like because we sometimes get like subplots about how this shit is affecting the mortal worlds in these books like especially in lightning thief there was like the mortals were talking about oh there's all these like things going wrong and horrible weather because of zeus's wrath so maybe like the backdrop of this book is going to be like the mortals something happens and they're gearing up for a full civil war uh, possibly but it's it's maybe too political 
That's probably too political, yeah. It, like, I'd, I, I, I don't know. We had the Egyptian Revolution. I don't know. <laughs> we certainly did, but to Rick Riordan, that may as well have not. That, that may as well have happened in fiction. I think. <laughs> That's true. That, to American writer Rick Riordan, uh, incredibly <laughs> successful. Like Egypt is a different world. I like, like just like any place that is not the United States of America and like probably a select few other places, like the things happening there may as well be like words on a page. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's just, it's, it's weird to consider, especially thinking about what Alcyonius was saying at the end of the last book. Yeah. Where he said like the world is at almost a bad place as it is now, as it was during world war two is, the only thing I could see here would be, like, turning this conflict between the demigods geopolitical. Like, or, like, <laughs> turning it turning it global. Like, if we made it that scale, then maybe we could correlate it to something that might be more tolerable for, I guess, the mainstream press, quote-unquote. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't see it, but I think that is an incredibly interesting idea that I do kind of wish Rick would follow up on. Yeah, like, I, I think I mentioned this to you when I was when I was initially like, hey, I have this like insane thing I want to say at the end of this episode, where I'm like, I can make this read and I can bring up evidence for this read. I don't know that this is intentional or it's got to be followed f- through on. I suspect it's not. I, I think at least the core of your argument is correct. Like, I think it is, I don't know how intentional it is, but I feel it getting stronger every book, I would say. Like, <laughs> like it, it seems like, it seems like the progression, like, right? It seems like the Olympians are, are just like, it seems like they are dying in a sense. Like, mm-hmm. and the final series is called Trials of Apollo. And that... Ooh. We we know this. Uh, that wasn't some big reveal or anything. No, no, I know, but I'm just I'm now that you said that out loud, I'm thinking. Yes, yes, that's what I that's what I mean to say is that like, the gods will be challenged. At least one god mm-hmm. will be challenged, in a way that we have not seen so far. And the shitty god who, based on the diary of Luke Castle, can go fuck himself. Yeah, which you know I guess is all of them, but <laughs> <laughs> truly, oh. D- that's a really good theory. I'm, I'm going to have to come up with my own theory eventually. Maybe like episode <laughs> 170 or something. Fuck yeah. I look forward to hearing it. Do we have... We'll get to episode... No, we definitely will. We're not... Yeah, of course we will. We're not running out of this shit anytime soon. No, no, we aren't. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, these have been these have been some great chapters. These were really good. I... But I, I think I might... Maybe we should close the page on this podcast for now, uh, and and get pumped for the ne- for the next time. Uh huh. It's two a.m. My thoughts are foggy. I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> uh huh. My my, my <laughs> final words. My final words. Did this feel to you? The I think part of the reason these chapters felt so good. Did they kind of feel like a synthesis between like some of the the better stuff of Heroes of Olympus and the classic vibes of Percy Jackson and the Olympians? absolutely yeah like this felt like a classic percy jackson encounter it did but it also felt still like uniquely heroes of olympus and i really think that i hope we keep up with that sort of like combined vibe because it's 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 immaculate it's good yeah i think if if rick can keep this up we're in for a killer book definitely
or it'll suck. But, <laughs> but, 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 our intro and outro music is Super Mario Ocean by Space Pony. You can find that at OC Remix. Our cover art is by Vera at Innsmouth underscore in on Twitter. We're hosted by the Moonshot Podcast Network. You can find them on Twitter at Moonshot Pods. I think also probably a co-host also, I think, now at either Moonshot Pods or Moonshot Podcast. I don't feel like checking right now, but you can find I think it. it's Moonshot Network. That's Moonshot Network. Okay, thank you. Uh, we're we're also on co-host and on Twitter, both on Unwise yep, Girls. just Unwise uh, Girls. Nobody yeah. else wanted that handle. That's right, well, for some reason. And <laughs> uh, we are we're also on Tumblr, but you know, we I'm not I'm not, I'm not very good at updating the Tumblr. <laughs> on all those places, or at least most of those, you can find links to our personal uh our personals to our email our discord which you should definitely join because it's it's some very great discussion especially if you're like we have a we have a great channel for spoiler chat if you want to go if you're like listening to these and you're like oh i know what's gonna happen i want to talk so badly about their opinions about why they're stupid or why they're good (laughs) go in that spoiler chat there's some great discussion um also because like you we can't look at it so you can talk shit at us and we won't know that is true like (laughs) like in like a year i'll be able to look at some of it and then i will like then i'll know and then i'll ban you from the server forever probably (laughs) um but until then you you've got a free reign to basically just say whatever also if you want to support us you can go and leave a five-star rating and review on your podcast app of choice. You can tell a friend about us. Or you can go to patreon.com slash unwisegirls where, for just a dollar a month, you can get the Discord role of Camp Counselor. For $3 a month, you get the Discord role of Friend of Bacchus, as well as all of our bonus content. Yep, on the last bonus episode, we discussed the fact that we are like within striking distance of the end of homestuck and also the inhuman energy vampire known as jeff probst host of popular tv show survivor uh-huh <laughs> uh-huh god and for five dollars a month you get the discord role of venus is chosen all of our bonus content and a special thank you at the end of every episode speaking of which this week we'd like to thank danny tana mercy veronica friend brie and erica Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, Frosty the Snowman, it's truly the most quintessential Christmas song. It introduces a beloved figure who invites the children to come to him, gets into an altercation with state authorities. Right, the hollering stop. And then he dies, but promises to be back again one day. Frosty is a Christ figure. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Catherine. And we're I'll Be Pod for Castmas, a seasonal podcast where we overanalyze Christmas pop songs and movies and put them into conversation with some unlikely pieces of literature. Don't be a Grinch. Join us on I'll Be Pod for Castmas on the Moonshot Podcast Network. <laughs>